Hey Phil. Hey Laurie, how you doing? I'm okay, thanks. Are you feeling better this week? I'm feeling much better, much better, yeah. Sun no, is shining, it's all good. It is shining, isn't it? There's beautiful birds I can see out the window. What a lovely day. Uh, listeners, welcome to the Super Belly Bros in Movie Land podcast. We're delighted to have you with us. Phil, you haven't seen any new films again this week, have you? There's been nothing out. I've seen Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy 2, which I'm excited to share some thoughts on. But... We are going to share, uh, have your thoughts on that later on. But I have seen Mindhorn, Julian Barrett's new comedy, and I've also seen Unlocked with Numi Rapace and Orlando. Orlando Bloom, a sort of terrorist uh, spy thriller, almost. Funny enough, it's kind of light on releases. I wonder why. Well, because of Guardians of the Galaxy, you mean? Yeah, because there's a giant Marvel film out, which mm, kind of yeah, kills maybe, all the competition. <laughs> okay, and we're also going to do what we've been watching, two films each this week, because we don't have uh, so many current releases to go through. And what else are we doing? Well, we've got Benedict's interview with a director of a film called Spaceship. But we're not going to do it this week, we're going to do it next week. That's because next week is the film's uh, official release across the UK, so we thought we'd do something tight and well-produced like all those proper shows <laughs> and have Benedict's interview with Alex Taylor, the director, alongside our thoughts on the film itself. So look out for that one next week. Uh, but we are doing something on visionary directors, aren't we? Yeah, we're going to be looking or uh, thinking a bit about how on earth it is that directors can visualise the final product of the film because when you see a little bit of the filming, the sort of daily raw footage, it just looks like nothing. And then it's cinema magic when it ends up on the exactly. final screen. Exactly. If you ever wondered what it is that a director really does, this is one of those great examples where everything's out of sequence and yet they have to hold the whole thing in their mind, all the processes and visualising the audience reaction to that finished thing. So I'm looking forward to that one, actually. Yeah, that's pretty much it though, isn't it? Yeah, well, your emails and tweets will be in packaged in with Phil's thoughts on Guardians of the Galaxy 2 because a lot of you have been in touch about that. But yes, I think that is it. Uh, Patreon.com slash Bros if you want to support the show. Um, anything else? If you want to email the show or get in touch, you can reach us at superbaileybros at gmail.com or you can tweet us at superbaileybros. Nicely done, Phil. And uh, let's be off, but I want to leave you with this thought. You know, I feel like I've recently discovered Justin Timberlake. How about that? <laughs> what do you mean? I mean? We were just driving the other day and I was listening to some of his tracks and I was having such a nice time. I'm worried that I'm sort of appreciating music roughly 15 years late. And I'm worried that in 10 years, I'm going to be telling you how great Taylor Swift is. I wouldn't surprise me, wouldn't surprise me. Justin Timberlake's been around for ages, man. He's gold. Yeah, well, there we go. Okay, on with the show. Can't stop the feeling. Okay, Phil, a bit like last week, I'm going to give you two reviews in one. I've seen Unlocked and I've also seen Mindhorn. And I think we're going to do Unlocked first, aren't we? I think that's a bigger film. That's got Naomi Rapace in it and also Orlando Bloom. What did you say, Naomi, Naomi Rapace? No, 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 Naomi Rapace. Oh. I think it's Numi Rapace, isn't it? The Naomi Rapace. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Sorry, no, you're quite right. Yeah, uh, the actress from The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, the original Swedish one, and also Prometheus. And we are hoping she's going to be in Alien Covenant as well. I'm hoping so. I liked her character in Prometheus. Elizabeth Shaw, yeah, she was good in that. And Orlando Bloom, does he need any introduction? Legolas. <laughs> the world in bloom. I don't know what that means. <laughs> uh, okay, shall I start with that one and then we'll come on to Mindhorn? Yes. Let's have a clip uh, after this brief intro. So Unlock stars Numi Rapace as a CIA investigator who is based in uh, the UK at the beginning of the film and she stopped CIA investigating. She dropped off because there was a terror plot she failed to properly foil in Paris 
and a bridge exploded and loads of people died and she just can't handle her failure in that situation. So when Michael Douglas, who was kind of her ex-boss at the CIA, turns up and says, look, we want you back, she, she rejects him and she can't quite, just can't quite process it all. And yet then when John Malkovich gives her a call as well and says, look, we've got this major, major terror plot and we can't find anyone else nearby. There are no other investigators who can do this. We need you to come in and we need you to help us out. She finds herself quickly roped in. But... As she begins to interrogate and question a courier who may or may not be involved in this big terrorist plot, it suddenly becomes clear that the people she thinks she can trust may not be people she can trust at all. And very fast, Numi Rapace is on her own, being tracked by all kinds of different agencies, by the bad guys, by the good guys, and she just has to process it all and figure out the truth. And she may or may not be aided by a certain London Cockney thief who's got a bit of charm and a bit of street smarts and a bit <laughs> of a Earth is military a background. <laughs> what sort of charming chap could possibly fill that void, Phil? I'm guessing it's the lad de Bloom. Well, why don't we find out in this clip? Here are two people, Numira passes one, and guess who the other one is, having a little chat after she's managed to escape from something. Didn't I just get you out of a whole heap of trouble? You have my gratitude. Well, I'll trade your goodwill and appreciation for what the f*** is going on in London that involves the CIA, dead prisoners and a terror strike. Goodbye, Jack. Bad idea shedding me. I heard too much. I'm an unknown variable now. Tactically, it's a no-brainer. You really want me around. I'm useful. And I like trouble. Goodbye. You're saying the stakes aren't high enough? Oh, they are high enough. Well then. I can help you. I've had my trouble since the war. Clearly not so well adjusted. But I'm combat tested. And right now, I'm thinking I'm the only friend you got. Go home, Jack. I am home. Where the f*** are you? Any idea? That is the weirdest accent. It sounds like a fake movie. Why do you say that? Because the dialogue is so like on the nose, <laughs> cheesy genre stuff. And he's, still, he's like worse than Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> it's not good. And he's British. I don't know what's going on there. Um, I, I really want to like Orlando Bloom because, I mean, everyone loved him as Legolas. He was great as Legolas. But, and, and I think it's just one of those sad things where time has told that it's because not that much was required of him in that role. He wasn't great in Kingdom of Heaven. He's done a bunch of things where he's been sort of average Pirates of the Caribbean. He was fine because he, he was played a, sorry, a solid lead, wasn't Panker he? Wood, yeah, that's right. And it just kind of... I, I feel for him and I want him to have a career renaissance, especially, or renaissance, whatever we say in England, because at the moment the BBC homepages are full of little clips uh, with the headline, Orlando Bloom, I would love to be Bond. And on the strength of this, it's never going to happen. Can you imagine a James Bond like that? No. See, that just makes me feel sad. Uh, Anyway, with all that sadness in the context, listeners, this is not a great movie. I went to watch it last week and... I sort of felt in completely two different directions about it. On the one hand, I agree with Phil. It's like a fake film. It's The performances are awful. Every single one is terrible. But I don't think they can be blamed for it. I think it's the direction. So this is the guy who did The World's Not Enough. The script writer is a guy who wrote the video game Halo Reach. That oh, great really? <laughs> story for the ages. There, nothing is working to make the actors seem convincing or interesting or relatable or anything. It feels just terrible and fake. And yet completely at the other end of the spectrum, quite a few times as I was watching the movie and thinking, gosh, this is terrible. 
I was actually surprised by the way that the plot moved. And uh, despite myself, I was quite intrigued by where it was going to go. So that sequence at the beginning where suddenly she realises she can't trust the people she thinks she can trust is actually kind of cool. I didn't see it coming. I was not really sure after that point where things were going to go. And time and again, I was my expectations went slightly the wrong way and it turned out differently than I thought. And I really liked it when Tony Collette turns up as one of the heads of MI5. She's, she's great in the role and she adds a bit of class to it all. So it's really weird. It pushes you between these two extremes. Oh, on the one hand, one of the worst films you've ever seen. And on the <laughs> other hand, one of the more interesting sort of terror, thriller, spy plots so that it's... have been around recently. So it's plotted quite well, but the script isn't up to much. And the script acting... is atrocious, and I think you can tell from that clip alone. That I actually, it was so bad in places, I want, when it comes out, to clip some sounds from it, because there's a great moment where Orlando Bloom says, I'd like a bit of tagine. <laughs> What's that? Who wrote that? <laughs> what? But what, what a great delivery. There's a few of his lines that are worth <laughs> clipping out and using his little jingles on the show. John Fashionist style, man. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's terribly scripted. I think it's quite badly directed and I feel sad about this because you know I've got a soft spot for The World Is Not Enough which is it's Michael Apted is the guy uh, but it's just not it's, there's nothing exciting about it and worse at various points and this is 15 rated at various points where they could have had some action or they could have shown some real physical emotional whatever consequences to the things that are going on uh, in the film well, you know, which include biological weapons right and double crosses and there's just nothing. There's a really good example where towards the end of the film, someone is being dangled down a stairwell and, you know, the inevitable is likely to happen, right? Someone yeah. might have to fall down the stairwell. And I can think of a lot of films that do that. And it's not a nice moment, but the way that the screenplay is designed, it requires impact if someone is going to fall down a stairwell. Does that make sense? It's someone insignificant in the story. Yeah. And so the way that that is filmed, you sort of need... This is going to sound really terrible. I hope you're going to know what I mean, Phil, because I'm going to sound like an awful You need person. a bit of death. Yeah, you need, you need them to sort of clonk into the banisters on the way down. That's the point of that shot. It's otherwise, nasty and horrible, yeah, isn't it? You, otherwise, you don't frame it that way. Whereas the director, in this case, sets up the frame, sets up the context and everything else, and then basically just cuts away from it all. So you don't see anything. You don't feel anything. There's quite literally no impact. They're exactly right, Phil. I mean, in, in this case, there really is literally no impact. <laughs> nothing. There's just the sort of before and after and it so i thought it was mishandled in almost every way tony collette redeems herself i still like nomi rapace or numi rapace i want orlando bloom to, to do well um and i think a lot of people are going to be quite pleased with what happens to his character if they're not a fan of orlando bloom uh but yeah it's not a great movie it gets a c i think that is really quite low, isn't it? Well, it's not that low, because it's not a C-. minus. So if you watch it, you'll probably enjoy it. And like me, you might just be carried along enough by the twists and turns, long enough to distract you from all the terribleness on screen. What sort of environment, like, is it sort of an afternoon on a Sunday movie? What sort of environment could you imagine somebody enjoying this movie? Probably the way that I did, which is having no expectations or low expectations and being pleasantly surprised that there is something there as opposed to nothing there. Any bonuses? Yeah, there was one bit that really made me laugh quite a lot. Uh, John Malkovich is is great, man. He gets a lot of stick for basically being just weird. He's a bit like the um, more serious version of Nicolas Cage, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. and they're both just larger than life, and yet somehow they sort of work. Or like Gary Busey or something. Yeah, exactly. They're so unbelievable, and yet they're very watchable. And he is hilarious as this uh, CIA boss who's trying to track Numi Rapace down. There's one uh, really genius cut uh, from the editor, and maybe this is good direction, who knows, where he's having a conversation with Tony Collette, and they're basically disagreeing and being frustrated with each other that one of their operations hasn't gone well. And it cuts after John Malfitch is shouting down at her 
it cuts back to Tony Collette, who gets up from her computer, and you see John Malkovich on the screen just swearing uh, into into the camera. And there's something about it that's just hilarious. It's it's very John Malkovich, and it's good. So, yeah, there are definite things to enjoy, but it's not good. Okay, what about Mindhorn then? Right, let's move on to Mindhorn. I sort of feel like we need to put the clip here for some breathing space. (laughs) Yep. Right, so I can't launch straight into the clip. So instead, we're going to do the trailer. And let me just intro a little bit of the text that appears on the trailer. So this is Julian Barrett, who was one half of the Mighty Boosh, and he's starring as Richard Thorncroft. He is a washed-up actor. He used to play Detective Mindhorn in the 70s or the 80s, which was uh, a hit TV detective show set on the Isle of Man. And that was a long time ago. He's moved to London. His career has really stalled. And I think that's all I need to say. Hopefully the trailer will do the rest. Let's do this. Save it for the take, baby. Plenty more where that came from. <laughs> Action! Special Agent Bruce P. Mindhorn could literally see truth. Your mouth saying no, but your brain saying yes. You can't hide the truth from Mindhorn. You are exactly where you need to be. Hello, lovely. Here for the casting, Richard Thorncroft. I am afraid of no creature. Do you feel me? Yeah, it's literally incredible. No one seems to know who I am. You've matured like a fine wine. A man could get drunk on that wine. Suspected serial killer Paul Melly has escaped from hospital and is on the loose. I would only speak to Detective Mindhorn. Oh, more people are going to die. He thinks Mindhorn is a real detective. Get me Mindhorn. Ahoy there! TV cop helps real cops solve crime. Let's save some lives. Richard Horncroft. Twang! Look who it is. It's Mind Horn. Look at him now. What is this? Well, that's called living the high life. Yeah, too many biscuits. (laughs) Hello, old friend. Same character at all times. When I go in, I go deep. When he calls, keep him on the line. Mind Horn makes people wait. And when they wait, they become angry. And when they're angry, they make mistakes. Yo, what's going down? Hello? He's hung up. More people are going to die. We're all going to die and get over it. Some with a bang, some with a whimper. Some with a weird wasting disease. It's truth time. We're living in a dream world. Can you see the truth? How do I look? Like you need some help? Too late. I walk alone. Yeah, there you go. So basically, if you didn't catch it, while his acting career is on a real downer, you can hear the failed audition he had with Kenneth Branagh right at the beginning of the trailer. He gets a call from the Isle of Man constabulary who are trying to track down a murder suspect. And the murder suspect will only talk to Detective Mindhorn, who he believes is a real person. So he basically gets a weird acting gig where he has to turn up as Mindhorn, talk to this uh, murder suspect down the phone and help the police track him down. But he obviously views it as a PR opportunity. So if Detective Mindhorn can help solve a real murder, that might put him back on the map, gain him some profile and get his acting career kickstarted. Even though, you know, now he's balding, he's older, he's not in as good shape as he used to be, no one seems to remember who he is. Bringing a lot of bells of Alan Partridge, the Why movie. Why do you say that, Phil? Because Alan Partridge, it was uh, 
sort of taking a washed up sort of joke of a person and then putting him into a real life situation and him being the character he is he thinks oh this hostage situation in the Alan Partridge movie I can use this to raise my profile I'll be the face of this siege yeah. siege face as the joke goes that's right it, the thing is Phil it is very much like Alan Partridge in its style of comedy and its protagonist in, in just about everything it features Steve Coogan <laughs> who plays a sort of more successful actor than Mindhorn who used to be in the same TV show it kind of mirrors real life isn't it? <laughs> a little bit in an uncomfortable way in fact a lot of this film mirrors real life in an uncomfortable way and I think, you know, Julian Barrett, the writer and also co-writer with Simon Farnaby, they would probably admit that. They'd say, well, this is kind of a self-deprecating t- uh, film as well. It's very British. It's very cringy. Let's laugh at ourselves. And we all love the sad sack and the failures and the tragedy. Don't we? Do we love that film? I think you do. But the jokes in that trailer didn't seem that good. There didn't seem to be any zingers. They seem quite obvious. Yeah, there's a couple of problems with this. Two major, major problems. The jokes are not funny enough. I completely agree, Phil. I think Julian Barrett's delivery suits the Mighty Boosh and sketches a lot better than it does a feature film because his whole thing is one note straight man style and he's the person who knows the least so he's the dumbest person in the room totally lacking in self-awareness that gets tiring after a while and it unless you really love that joke to the exclusion of all other jokes that style of comedy you're not going to laugh you have to love that or you're not going to laugh at all and I I didn't really laugh that much I I got what he was doing I just didn't find them very funny and the other problem is that with Alan Partridge for example you already know that character he's been around for ages what 20 years or something yeah he's a long established character he's a living he's a legend of comedy so when you see a film with him in it you come with a lot of stuff already in the bank you know his character don't you yeah and he doesn't need to prove anything whereas this is an entirely new character it's an entirely new comic setup and it has to deliver and the other you know in between both those things is the fact that i think everyone knows that i think everyone knows it's not that funny i think everyone knows it's there's not enough time to really care about this character so you can really feel the thin nature of the production in my opinion throughout the, the whole movie they the cast is very slim basically julian barrett is on screen for almost all the time with everyone else playing kind of a cameo role none more obviously so than kenneth branner who turns up for roughly two scenes and he's hilarious in it you can see his quality straight away <laughs> but what's he doing in it uh, steve coogan turns up and he's funny he doesn't have that many jokes but with the ones that he does he delivers well because you can see the skill that he's got but he's hardly in it uh, and then you've also got andrea risborough or riseborough who's in birdman what's she doing in it i don't understand <laughs> she's playing one of the police chiefs she has hardly any screen time and she nails it when she's in it then even essie davis and essie davis was recently in the babadook and she was in the matrix revolutions and she was the girl with the short hair who shot bazooka at the uh the giant oh yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. she's good in that as well and, and she plays uh, a sort of old flame of richard thorncroft here that he tries to reignite things with she's good when she's on screen but i it everything it just feels so stretched and it feels so thin and it almost embarrassingly so like there's a particular scene at the beginning when he's in his casting agency and he's talking to his agent saying that why am i not getting any gigs and you know you understand that kind of sequence right because there's your opportunity to drop some names to bring in some celebrity cameos and make him look like someone who used to be a star but now isn't and people can't remember him yeah and so who do they drag in they, they just get simon callow uh, who's a legend, yes, but not of, not that memorable a legend. Do you Simon mean? Calais. Well, okay, you've said it, there you go. But he, he's famous, you'd sort of recognise him, but he doesn't sell the joke very well because he's not really a big enough name to make it work. And I, yeah, I just think it falls flat, Phil, and I'm sad about it because it's one of these British comedies that people really want to succeed 
Everyone is desperate. It's a part of that underdog thing that we talked about a whole bunch of times. Yeah, yeah. People want the British underdog to survive. People loved Julian Barrett in the bush. He sells the underdog thing quite well. But it's, I, I, well, this is where I kind of, as you can tell, I'm struggling to know how to kind of articulate <laughs> this. This is where the underdog thing feels really, rings really hollow to me, which is that these guys may feel that they're underdogs and they may feel they're selling an underdog story, but... They have had an opportunity to make a film. They've been funded to do it. It's going to get a wide release. It's been marketed. They are living a dream for millions and millions of people. So in what way are they really an underdog? And therefore, what real excuse do they have to put something so average on the cinema? That's how I felt. Scathing. Well, that's what I think. I think this is one of those things that didn't have enough editing. It didn't have enough people saying, well, I don't this get the joke. This isn't very good. Yeah, this, this central conceit is okay, but it, you need to really flesh it out because there's not enough there for people to engage with. There, where were those meetings? What happened? There, there's just not enough that's gone. People aren't criticising it enough before it goes to production. That's the whole point of film, isn't it? Do you think basically... Because he was in the Mighty Boosh and he's got kind of a lot of critical acclaim and well known for that, he's riding on that and well, managed to make a movie out of it. Yes and no, because this is too late. I think that the headline of the newspaper review that you saw... <laughs> yeah, I saw your one, one and a half stars. Uh, yes, one and a half out of five I gave it. Um, was, just 10 years too late? And I think it is too late. Julian Barrett, if he'd done this 10 years ago, his star would have been big enough that he might have sold it to the audience that loved the Boosh. Uh, it's it's too late. So I don't feel that they've you know coasted through production. Um, I think it's probably taken quite a long time to get there. I just think it's still not really all the way there. Um, but that doesn't mean it's totally atrocious. I think if you watch it, if you've got a, like a big soft spot for the cringe comedies of like the early 2000s, say, mm. then you'll probably feel quite warmly towards it because it's a style of humour that you don't see that often anymore. It's people that you don't see that often anymore doing something that's very, very familiar slash derivative and boring. <laughs> uh, there's stuff to like about it. And he teams up with Simon Farnaby, who plays this Dutch stunt double. He was Mindhorn's stunt double on the show and was always jealous of him. Uh, now the stunt double is with Essie Davis's character, you know, his old flame after mm. he left to try and be a big star. And there's some good rivalry between those two. You heard them there talking about living the high life, too many biscuits, whatever it is. Mm. They are the funniest moments in a film by a long, 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 long way. And I think it's because those two also wrote it and they're obviously comfortable with each other and they obviously don't have a point to prove. So when they're doing their thing, it's really funny and it works. But that's such a small percentage of the film. It really should have just been a sketch show. In some ways, it sounds like a more of like a mini series. I think. Yeah, I think it should have been. And one of the other things, listeners, if you're looking at the trailers and you think, oh, it can't be as bad as Laurie says, you might be right. I, you know, humor is very subjective, isn't it? But I think a lot of people are being convinced by the spoof 80s TV show at the beginning of the trailers where they say it's mind torn. He can literally see the truth, and there are some good one-liners in there. That is the intro to the film. It lasts about three minutes, and they don't go back to it. It just disappears. There's, no, there's nothing. There's nothing more there. There's not enough spoof. And, you know, final nail in the coffin for me <laughs> was that one of the big jokes in the trailer, and I think a lot of people have enjoyed, is a scene where he tries to vault over a gate, and as he tries to vault over it, the gate swings. That's uh, Simon Pegg and Nick Frost, isn't well, it? Well, there's that, doing the fences. It's even earlier than that. I'm pretty sure it was Buster Keaton. It's one of my favourite yeah. visual gags of all time, where he jumps on a swinging gate, and the way that Buster Keaton does it is it swings all the way around, so when he does climb over it, he's back on the side that he was to begin with. That's funny, man. That's great. In this, this one, <laughs> when Julian Barrett does it, it doesn't go all the way. He just fails to get over it. And you just think, well, Hot Fuzz did it. Buster Keaton did it. What have you done? 
You've done the middle and you've done it worse. <laughs> oh, and another nail in the coffin. Final nail in the coffin. The opening features Richard Thorncroft preparing to be Mindhorn in a scene while they're filming the show. And he's doing uh, hilarious enunciation exercises. Anchorman. Exactly. Already done in the opening credit sequence by Ron Burgundy, who did it the best anyone has ever done it. The arsonist has oddly shaped feet. Oh, the human torch was denied a bank loan. Hilarious. No one is going to remember the phrases that... Uh, that Meinhorn uses. I should stop because I'm um, going on and on, aren't I? No, I think this is, you can tell how disappointed I was, especially when it's getting so many great reviews. Um, I don't think you should trust reviews. I think if you're going to watch it, please go in with low expectations and then email me with how wrong I am because I think that's the only way to watch it. What's the grade? Oh, C minus. I think it's much worse than Unlocked. Any yeah. bonuses? No, not really, man. I've thrown it all in there. <laughs> so, I mean, t- two not great films. Would you say Go See Guardians of the Galaxy instead? Uh, probably, yeah, that's a shame, isn't it? Or go see Lady Macbeth. That's not a comedy <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination, but it's still really good. And that is a really good British film, yeah. So check out the films from last week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically. Or what I've been watching, that's coming up, right? Yeah. Okay. What are we going to do about the jingle? Because we decided we're going to split what we've been watching in half. Play it twice, play, play it twice. twice. <laughs> I don't think demand is that high. Yes. <laughs> Listeners, that jingle means it's time for what we've been watching this week. These are films we've watched on DVD or streaming or whatever, just basically not at the cinema. So if you're interested in our reviews, you can track them down yourselves. And then you can let us know what you think. Superradiobros at gmail.com or tweet us at Superradiobros. Nice, very slick, Phil, very slick. Uh, and we're doing two this week because we've got a shorter episode. Phil, I'd love you to go first. What's your first movie? So I'm first of all going to do Interstellar. The late coop. Yeah, we had a flag. It's an Indian surveillance drone. Solar cells power an entire farm. What'd you do, Murph? Uh, she didn't do nothing. Murphy's law. You're a well-educated man, Coop. And a trained pilot. And an engineer. The world doesn't need any more engineers. We didn't run out of planes and television sets. We ran out of food. Why did you need me after something that's bad? Oh, we didn't. Murphy's Law. Murphy's Law doesn't mean that something bad will happen. It means that whatever can happen will happen. We must confront the reality that nothing in our solar system can help us. Now you need to tell me what your plan is to save the world. We're not meant to save the world. We're meant to leave it. And this is the mission we were trained for. I've got kids, Professor. Get out there and save them. I have no idea when you're coming back. I'm coming back. We must reach far beyond our own lifespans. We must think not as individuals, but as a species. We must confront the reality of interstellar travel. Murph, I love you forever. Oh, that music, Phil. Oh, it's 
giving me some memories <laughs> about something I've said before about Christopher Nolan. Shut your face. Because I was finding it quite hard to hear what they were saying. <laughs> shut your face. Because I was... trailer, I, but it was so epic. Shut your face. <laughs> <laughs> Stop. Zip. I, it's my review. Shush. I, I want to come back to you right away. The music uh-huh. is really good in Stella. It's, it's so genuinely it's really loud. It's yeah, loud, but it's one. really good. It uh-huh. serves the film so well mm. and makes the, the drastic yeah, moments so Yeah, because it overwhelms good. the senses to such an extent it doesn't make any sense anymore. I agree, you're, it's just like the film. You're on pause. <laughs> this is my review. You can okay, say your right, bit at I, the end. I will literally zip, but don't come back at me then because I'll come back at you. <laughs> Fine, bring it on. Zip. Oh, man. So, this is Interstellar from 2014. It's directed by Christopher Nolan. That's why Laurie's got a chip on his shoulder already. Hey, about I said, it. don't come at me. <laughs> and it's written by Christopher Nolan and his brother, Jonathan Nolan. And this is the story of uh, Cooper, who is played by Matthew McConaughey. He is a sort of aerospace engineer, pilot guy, and also a farmer. Because in this current age of the, the Earth, it's set in the future earth is basically dying the crops are all dying and everyone has basically been told the only worthwhile job is to try and farm make sure there's enough food so the world is kind of uh, imagine sort of the oklahoma dust bowl that's kind of very much an inspiration and the earth is sort of slowly dying and where, where on earth is humanity going to go where's it's on earth mm, exactly how patient and it just so happens that Matthew McConaughey's character discovers NASA, which has been kind of uh, shut down, but is carrying on secretly, kind of like a pirate version of NASA. And they have decided that the only way that humanity can survive is if they go away from Earth, go find a new planet for the humans to inhabit. And that's how they're going to save life. And they need Matthew McConaughey. He's a really good pilot. He's going to be the guy who can lead this sort of exploration mission into the deep dark of space, into wormholes and discover a new planet. Nicely done, Phil. And that's Michael Caine in the uh, NASA base, isn't it? Yeah, sort of uh, good luck charm from Christopher Nolan there. <laughs> yeah. I have uh, previously said on this podcast how much I love this film, mm. but I hadn't seen it, genuinely hadn't seen it, since I saw it in the cinema. I saw it twice in the cinema, and I enjoyed it both times, and really liked it, and I thought people gave it a hard kind of rap. Having watched it again, I think... Maybe some of the criticism that it's sent its way is kind of deserved. Do you know, you've got to watch it when you say things like that, Phil, because I was one of those people who criticised it immediately. So do you really want to cue me, tag me in here? I'm not tagging you in at all. <laughs> okay. I want you to listen to me. I'm I saying, will, I shall. I'm giving you a little bit of kind of compromise. So you've got to let me, like, okay, give me right, room to breathe. Thing, do your thing. I think there are some moments in this film which are so fantastic and visually stunning, amazingly well conceived of, crafted and executed by the director and performed as well. But in the middle of that is a lot of pretension, basically. Mm-hmm. Michael Caine does the same speech twice in the film. Does he really? He uses that poem, don't go off into the good deep dark of the night or something like that. He says it twice in the in the film. <laughs> I was like, why are you doing the most pretentious thing ever twice in That's your film? Funny. And I think what's great about this movie is the the set pieces, the really, really well done set pieces and the ideas of the film, the concept of the film, the idea of of kind of going out, trying desperately to find some some way to save humanity. That's really gripping. It's exciting. It's what film should be about. It's the middle bits in between when they sort of ponder and sort of pontificate about things. The chat in between those big scenes aren't really worth it. And that, I think that maybe is typical of Christopher Nolan. You know you criticise him because he's not really interested in dialogue. He wants moments and emotions. I think that's kind of true. He doesn't care about what the dialogue says. He cares about how you feel watching this film. And what he does is make you feel massively excited, really gripped, really engaged. There's one scene where Matthew McConaughey has to try and dock with a spinning uh, space station, basically, in the film, which I think is brilliant really really brilliant it's so exciting the music by Hans Zimmer is perfect for that scene and you just 
are so there with them as they try and basically survive in a deadly situation. Also, you've got this sequence on a a water planet with a giant wave coming in. And there's a a whole thing about time. If they're on this planet, then it means that time will... Every hour they spend on this planet will be seven years back home on Earth. And there's a real sense of urgency, quite literally. You, You feel the stakes of them being on that planet and trying to investigate whether or not it could sustain life. And... Immediately after that, you have a heartbreaking scene where Matthew McConaughey acts the pants off of it. Okay, okay, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. I agree with you, Phil. Like, the bare drama of the events in the screenplay is strong, and Christopher Nolan does really know how to do that. I'm, I'm glad you're sort of agreeing with me on the actual dialogue, though. But I think what, generally speaking, the thing which is thrown about this film, and people say, oh, they didn't like it, is actually they're just not on board with the ideas of the film, and they were too excited, I think, by the prospect of the film. So I think it's going to be like 2001. One of the uh, one of my friends said he expected it to be the best film ever. He, it was going why, to be... Why would you ever think, go because, in thinking that? Because it's sort of visual and dramatic and exciting and this, this great expanse of space. It's going to be an epic story. And the visuals are epic. They are incredible. That's what 4K is made for, man. But then the, the story itself... I think people really dislike the idea of love, which is actually genuinely plays quite a strong part in the film. And conceptually, it says some things about that and suggests something about love being a force in the universe, which people really couldn't get on board with because it's so sciencey for the rest of the film. And I think people, either they want it to be more science fictiony or they want it to be more palatable and uh, less about the kind of rigorous science of physics and wormholes and things like that. And Christopher Nolan, I think, kind of walks down the middle and doesn't really care. He doesn't really mind being silly, but also dramatic. He likes the idea of taking things seriously, but he's not interested in telling realistic stories, if that makes any sense. No, well, I agree. He's more an emotional sort of guy, isn't he? There's a bit of Twilight in there, Phil, if I may be so bold, in that Twilight promised a big battle that was grounded in reality and it ended with Bella's big love shield that saved the day. (laughs) And everyone was very, 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 very disappointed. Anyway, one other thing I will say, and then I'll wrap it up, is Anne Hathaway is, I think, think well cast in this film. You think I think she is. I thought no, she was one of the worst things. No, no, oh, you don't think. Listen good, to what good, I say. Good, 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 I know you good, think good, you know good, what good. I'm going to say. <laughs> I say she's not well cast in this film. I think her character, you need to care about her a lot more. You need to believe there's much more chemistry between Matt McConaughey and her. Um, and because she just kind of is a bit blank and a bit faceless, she's just kind of pretty and and acts well she's not a bad actress at all but i just don't think she fits that role and that means i think some of the mechanics of the film later on don't work as well as you'd hoped but overall i'm going to give this film a b plus i think it is a really good film i think lots of people and i know this is going to be really controversial Uh so maybe you Uh need to drown me out or something i don't know but i think a lot of people don't necessarily understand the plotting of this film don't understand that hmm because I think it is it's confusing and I think that's not a, cre- a discredit to them. But I think if you don't pay attention, you do miss some key pop points that the film is saying to you as an audience. It's sort of dimension theory, isn't it? Well, and I just think the basic idea of the film is sometimes missed. I was watching it with two of my friends who are both film guys and they really like film and they like the plots of it all. And they, I had to sort of pause it and say, so this is what the film is saying. This is happening and this means this and this means that. And they're like, oh, really? That's Oh, I didn't really pick up on that the first time I saw it. So I'm thinking maybe there are quite a few people who didn't really understand what the plot was saying. And so they don't really engage with it properly. 
controversy okay. over. I'm not trying to have a go at you. <laughs> I'm just saying, I think maybe if you... But what you're not saying, if I can clarify it, is that if you didn't like it, it means you didn't understand it. That's not what you're saying, because no, I did not... understand it and I didn't like yeah, it. Yeah, no, much. I'm not saying you could. You have to like it. If you understood it, you don't like it. I just think a lot of people don't understand it. Okay, got and it. And that's just a separate thing. I think that's partly the failing of the director as well. What you've failed to say at all, Phil, you haven't even mentioned Matt Damon, who I thought was the best thing in the film. Oh, I don't want to spoil it, because that was one of my favourite well, things. don't have to say anything about him, but I mean, he was. I didn't even know he was cast in it. To be fair, neither did I, and that's why I didn't want to mention okay. it at all because wow. I wanted to leave it as a surprise. That sequence as well, when they're on that planet, is great as well. I think I, I think that sequence made that made the film okay to me. If it had been everything else and not that, it would have been tedious. And the core idea is about I think thematically the film is very strong. It's very much about what would you do to survive? What would it take? Are people able to see the see what is needed to survive as well and they do that right the way through with both the things that are going on in space and also the things going on on earth with casey affleck do you remember he was in this film i didn't remember that he's no. kind of forgettable which oh, i he's think he's the brother isn't he he's the brother he's the son of matthew mcconaughey jessica chastain's bro yeah yeah exactly and they kind of it's a weird sort of subplot which does actually tie in with the grander themes of the story but I don't think they juggle it quite as well. So <laughs> I really like lots of this film, yeah. but I think it's You've also not mentioned Murph, whose name gets said more time than any other name Murph? in any screenplay ever. Murph! Yeah. Murph. <laughs> yeah, she's good in it. I like Jessica Chastain. Jessica Chastain, yeah. Okay. Now, what I didn't do, which I was tempted to do, was drown you out using my fake Christopher Nolan score. It would so. surprise me if you have done that already. No, and you no, just, no, no, just weave it in. By the way, to, when you realise that oh, Phil's kind of repeating himself, no, no, he's you not really saying anything. Stuff, so You're I just going to play it. the music and it's just going to drown me out and then I'll be like, and that's it, Laurie, we'll save, we'll save that for some other time. But thank you very much, Phil. So that was B plus from you. Nice. Yeah. Okay, and listeners, I will do The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and this is the 2009 Swedish language version starring Numi Rapace and Michael Nyqvist. How are you going to do the trailer? Uh, like this. 27 February 2009. Film Stieg Men som hatar Journalister, miljardär, advokat, hacker. En film är Nils Arden Grind. Vi har fem år, 27 februari 2009. Men som hatar now listen, if the voice on that trailer sounded <laughs> odd to you, it, it may be because he wasn't a native Swedish speaker. Maybe because it was you, Laurie. Well, I'm not going to give anything away. He was doing his very best to capture the Swedish uh, titles. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. Hey, this is not a funny film, all right? Calm no, down. No, There's nothing funny about this film. Listeners, you probably know more about this film than I do, because I basically not joined the hype train when this was all coming out, and when David Fincher did his 2011 remake, Stieg Larsson was in the newspapers for all kinds of reasons. I think it was quite a controversial uh, trilogy when it was published. He attracted a lot of criticism. Uh, in particular, I think people felt it was misogynistic in places. Uh, did you not know that, Phil? He's looking no, at you like, I didn't. What are you talking about? Maybe I'm remembering it wrong. Anyway. I think you are remembering it wrong. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> Michael Nyquist stars as uh, Michael 
Blonkfist. Blonkfist. Very similar names, isn't it? Yeah. Who is a journalist and a very famous investigative journalist. And at the start of the film, we find that he has published an article in Millennium, a magazine that he writes for, which is publicly accusing a very famous businessman for being involved in gun running and drug cartels, I think, as well. And he's in a court case because this hugely powerful man is accusing him of libel. He's saying, you're lying about me in the press. The case goes against Michael Blomqvist and he is due to go to prison in six months' time. After finding this out, he's understandably a bit depressed and he gets an odd call from a lawyer who says his client is interested in hiring Michael Blomqvist before he has to go to prison in six months. And it's revealed that this patron is a very, very wealthy businessman involved in, a, I think, an investment group called the Vanger Group. And he wants to find out what happened to his favourite niece who disappeared something like 40 years ago. He's been receiving flowers every year for her birthday and he doesn't know who it's from. And this ties into something from his past and it's leading him to believe while he's been obsessing over the disappearance that was never solved that her killer is taunting him and that she really was killed she didn't just disappear it's not a mystery she really was killed so he hires this journalist who's got nothing left to lose right he's going to prison in six months he's going to pay him well to research and find out what happened and it's particularly to investigate his own family this guy's that's right he's convinced it's someone in his family who caused uh, this niece harriet is her name to disappear Uh, and in the course of this we also meet the girl with the dragon tattoo played by numi rapace She's called Lisbeth and she is a hacker who's got some kind of mysterious past so she has to have a guardian watching over her. She works for a big firm. She hacks illegally into stuff and finds out all kinds of things about people and she discovers that Michael Blomquist is working on this case and she engineers it so they meet up and end up working together to try and solve it. Clear as mud? Yeah, I think it's it's a hard one to kind of summarise because it's a a dense novel that has a lot of moving pieces where they kind of create the situation and then that's when the investigation happens. Exactly, yeah. Well, listeners, I went into this thinking I was due a tense cyber thriller of some kind that was very high tech and high octane. Uh, especially when I knew that even though I haven't seen it, the remake, David Finch's remake stars Daniel Craig, James Bond himself. I had quite a lot of expectations going in that I was completely wrong about. As it turns out, this film is not fast-paced. It's not a cyber thriller. It's not high-octane. What it is instead is one of the darkest uh, crime uh, investigative stories I think I've I've ever come across. Uh, It really delves deeply into some quite perverse ideas that get expressed all the way through the film. So if you're tempted to watch it, be prepared for that, I think. But at the same time, it is incredibly gripping. I think the characterization that Numi Rapace brings to Lisbeth's character, who is troubled, introspective, but kind of interesting, is very intriguing. She plays her brilliantly. I can see why this more or less launched her to Hollywood fame. Uh, and I think uh, Michael Nyquist, who I last saw in John Wick, chapter one, by the way, who plays the, uh, the criminal baron who uh, that John Wick has a fistfight with towards the end of that mm. film. I thought he was excellent as an ageing you know, journalist with integrity who really does care about the truth. He, he was very convincing, as ever so slightly washed up with a, a good sort of heart to him and a desire to bring the guilty to justice and all that sort of stuff. I thought the setting in uh, these sort of remote parts of Sweden was beautiful and it really aided the slightly twisted, chilly atmosphere. Uh, and I think everything about it is is very excellently put together it reminds me of what i imagine shows like broad church alike um and there's a current vogue for quite dark criminal mystery thrillers. i think that that's because of this book this exactly. book was huge and it was the fact that steve larson died before it was published yeah, everything yeah. like that i think it became a was kind of sensational book that everyone was reading and then this film the films came out and yeah i think these are all symptomatic from this this book 
I completely agree, Phil. So if you haven't seen these and you've been enjoying things like Broadchurch and The Killing, that Danish drama that was huge a few years ago, then you'll probably be really interested in this, as, the, as you say, the thing that sort of started that wave of fiction. I, I just, I found it very compelling. I thought it was very well shot. I thought the atmosphere was entirely consistent and quite hard to deal with in places. The, my biggest complaints are actually more to do with the story than the film, because I think Lisbeth's character becomes basically deus ex in places. She, she gets that annoying trope of just being a hacker in inverted quotes which, which means she can do anything she wants exactly she can do anything find out anything not be traced she can she's a kind of trump card that gets played all the way through the film when michael uh, blomquist gets stumped and so his journalistic stuff is not very impressive and but that doesn't stop it being gripping because of the way it's structured it's just kind of a clever thing when it's that lazy it's weird how gripping the whole thing is <laughs> yeah. and how mysterious it is and i think another side of it as well is that you know, I mean, without spoiling too much, there's a, a suggestion of romance between Michael Blomqvist and uh, Numi Rapace's character, and I, I just didn't buy it. I think, and this is something that I think contributed to the criticism thrown at Steve Larson because it just seems so unlikely that a girl like Lisbeth is going to somehow be intrigued and entranced by this washed-up journalist. That it felt a bit like a fantasy for well, I've, I've a middle-aged man. I've yeah. read this book, and Michael Blomfist is it seems like a sort of surrogate for Steve Glass, well, which I think go. is a bit uncomfortable. That happens a lot in these books, in these thriller writing. Uh, and, uh, it's, yeah, like you say, it can be quite uncomfortable. So try your best to forget <laughs> that Steve Glasson might be a bit like Michael Blomfist. Um, yeah, I, I'm kind of running out of things to say. I thought it was gripping, but it was unpleasant. So, Would if you, you want yeah. to watch the David Fincher version? Are you curious about that? I'm intrigued from a filmmaking point of view about what the differences are, but I'm not eager to rewatch that story, no. So I've seen the David Fincher one. I quite like the David Fincher version of the film, and I've never seen the Swedish remake. So maybe we could do like a swap a and I watch the Swedish one, you watch the... Uh, can we give it a while, though? Because it was quite unpleasant. <laughs> fair, fair that's, that's my major thing to listeners. If you're, you know, of a sensitive disposition to quite unpleasant crimes of a sexual nature, then you might want to give it a miss or you might just want to prepare yourself because there's a lot of unpleasantness in, in the film. It's an explicit story for certain. Yeah, yeah. What grade would you give it? I'd probably give it a B... Because I don't think it was perfect. I did think it was gripping and interesting, but not my kind of thing, really. Fair enough. There you go. What are we watching? Yeah, there we go. Well, that's the end of this half of what I've been watching. We'll do the others quicker, will we, Phil? <laughs> yeah, I think <laughs> yeah. we have to, yeah. Okay, all right. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Phil, this is a thing that I was chatting to you about, and we don't have that many examples because we're kind of hoping listeners might contribute, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I watched a tribute from Steven Spielberg to John Williams, who was getting some kind of Lifetime Achievement Award. It was quite recent. John Williams being the composer of Star Wars, of Indiana Jones. Basically all of Steven Spielberg's films is John Williams, I think. Yeah, and one of the most deserving winners I I can ever think of. He is my favourite film composer of all time, I think. He's a genius. He's lots of people's favourites, isn't he? Yeah, and Steven Spielberg admitted that by showing one of the most iconic film scenes of all time, maybe, uh, the sequence in E.T. where the bike begins to fly. And if you've seen E.T., you'll know what I mean. And there's that amazing shot. Goes across the moon, doesn't yeah, it? It's the whole, shot. it's the logo for his uh, studio, Amblin That's Entertainment. Entertainment. Yeah, exactly. And it is just, it's a beautiful film moment. It's powerful. No matter how you feel about that film, and I know some people don't like it, you can't deny the cinematic power of that moment because it produces genuine emotions and wonder. It's acted well, even though it's a weird little plastic <laughs> alien in a, um, in a bicycle, bicycle basket. <laughs> it is very powerful. But what was great was Steven Spielberg admitting that he felt that scene would have lacked its power completely without John Williams's score. And this is what made me think, yeah, this is, this is what a director does, isn't it? Because Steven Spielberg could obviously visualise that scene to such an extent that he could get all the shots without knowing what the soundtrack would sound like. 
and without knowing quite what the overall tone of the film would be like, he had it all in his head and he had a dream and an idea and a vision that came true when John Williams completed that moment with the score. And I'm going to link um, that YouTube video on Twitter for you so you can see what I mean. And it's great to hear Steven Spielberg being so humble about it, actually. It's really weird, though, to think, because I've seen this all the time when you watch special features on DVDs or something like that. You see them capture the daily footage or whatever. Yeah, the B-roll Just stuff. with the camera. And I don't know if anyone's ever done, anyone listening has ever done uh, filming themselves. It's so frustrating because you film on your little kind of handy cam or whatever it is, and you really want to make a kind of cinematic movie. <laughs> yeah. And you get this sort of really rubbish thing which isn't lit very well and the sound doesn't sound good and there's no, there's no gloss to the image whatsoever. And so you think, how on earth is this going to end up being anything good? And I think that's actually quite true for what directors have to deal with at the start of filmmaking. Yeah. They, when they're doing these sort of daily shoots, they film this scene in a movie and it's, there's no music to go with it. There's not really much production. There's, they haven't done the sort of post-production uh, cleanup of the images and colour correcting and everything like that. And yet they have this vision, this idea of what the final product will be like. And it's suddenly, I think, it's quite interesting imagining scenes without the music, without the sort of... Or um, without all kinds of things, yeah. Or without the context of the scene around them, without the tight edit, all that. And the core idea of like having to film those scenes, those sequences, yeah. and imagining, and just kind of going, I know what this will be like at the end, but right now it looks nothing like it. I'll tell you, it's like, uh, you know, Lego, let's say, when you've got the instructions to uh, um, a Lego thing, and you can see what it needs to look like in the end, but it's just a sketch or whatever it is. And if you look at the individual pieces, or even when it's half there, it just looks terrible but you need to you need that vision you need the lego blueprint to know that if you follow it and you get all the pieces right then it will work and that's what the director brings you had a couple of examples didn't you well i mean sticking with steven spielberg imagine that sequence in jurassic park you know oh my gosh they move in herds or whatever they do move in herds yeah and you suddenly have their sort of wide-eyed glare and then it pans around and it shows these dinosaurs in cgi sort of moving through and it's this great vista in jurassic park and you think oh wow what a wonderful moment and then you imagine what it would be like to film it and you just think <laughs> steven spurbo is like right i'm gonna put the camera here and you guys you need to be absolutely amazed and you're just so bemused and you don't know what to say or think you've got you're speechless and they just have to kind of raise themselves out of a jeep you know that uh blonde yeah. girl oh there's a mate um uh, that's laura dern isn't it yeah laura dern like her kind of really standing up, up yeah. slowly going <gasps> and uh, she who is it she is it sam neil i think actually has to turn her head around because she's too distracted in the map which is also another part of the director's job isn't like it? seeing this the is how we're of, gonna get it yeah getting yeah. this moment how how you make it land with the audience and of course you've got all the music yeah that goes with that and it's the swell of john williams score again making that moment into something cinematic and exciting and something that connects with the audience i mean you've seen you must have seen that youtube video oh yeah classic do you Can want me to play, play that i want to play a clip this this okay. is uh, a youtube guy he basically just took that moment in uh, in jurassic park it weirdly illustrates what we're talking about doesn't and it? decided to replace the music with his own version of the music here it is. Welcome to Jurassic Park. Don't move in herds. 
That's great. It's so funny. Well, and then also, I guess you could say Lord of the Rings has one of these as well. This is you, you, you mentioned this one. I think this is interesting because it it does show that there's a different approach to all this sort of stuff. But I think a lot of people will remember the iconic moment in Fellowship of the Ring, isn't it? Yeah, when they're climbing over the mountain and then you suddenly have that shot where they're all together, the whole team is there. They crest the hill. And they sort they? of... Each of them strides out. You see Gandalf Between and Legolas and Aragorn. Yeah. And they just sort of emerge from a hill. And it's just they're walking over a hill. But because you've got the music there, Howard Shaw's music, the, the Fellowship of the Ring is here. It's a ride. They're on their yeah, journey. Yeah. And it's just them walking. And yet somehow it feels like this momentous moment. I think a lot of people remember. Yeah, it's very iconic. It works very well. You feel it in uh, like down into your bones, don't you? It's a, it's a good moment. But that's a really interesting one because is that Peter Jackson's direction or is it something else? Because for all we know, that could have been something... They just filmed all those wide shots of them walking up the mountains, going over different terrain. They filmed them coming, doing lots of coming over mountains. Okay, Legolas, come on, faster this time, please. That's that kind walk, of thing. Yep. And then after, in post-production, the editor's saying, look, you've got to slow this down. We've got to make this the moment. Or was it Peter Jackson? That's a really good one because it, there's so many different moving parts that have all combined to make that a great moment. Even its placing in the whole structure of the film, it comes at exactly the right moment where you know enough about these characters to care that they're on that quest. It's brilliant. There's just a few examples. And we kind of wanted to know if you guys had ever noticed that these sort of weird moments where it's the film coming together to achieve something important and impactful. And you just need to think to yourself, like in the filming of that, with the director on set, sat behind the camera, how did they envisage that? I get that it's a great moment when I'm watching the film, but when they actually had to make it, that that took some vision to achieve. Probably the filming of it was quite basic and quite yeah. undramatic. They don't have the music kind of inspiring them or anything like that. They just have to go, okay, action. And you're walking, you're walking. Look around, Legolas, have a look to the left. Yeah, okay, carry on. Next one. Come on, Hobbit, speed it up, speed it up. You know, and to throw in just a negative of this, this is do send us. And it's the kind of thing you only notice if you're watching it and thinking about it at the time. It's quite hard to bring these things to mind. But yeah, sorry, the negative side of this um, George Lucas in The Phantom Menace have you watched the making of that film yeah 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 there's a really interesting moment where he's sitting with the editor and what they're doing is compositing shots they've taken a shot of uh, the inside of a spaceship and the camera has stayed still completely still so they can actually layer the shots one on top of the other and there's a really fascinating moment where George Lucas says well can we take the right hand third of that shot and blend it with the first two thirds of this shot. And you watch kind of you and McGregor walk out of the third and disappear because it's two different shots completely. And a lot of people have said that's a great example of the end of really good filmmaking because that, that is someone who hasn't done it on the day, isn't it? That's someone who didn't have the vision on the day. They're making the film after they've already filmed it. Yeah. And, you know, and I really love, I, you know, I'm not going to join on the let's slam George Lucas train because I think he did some really good stuff. Even in those prequels, I think there are some good moments, but that is the opposite of what we're talking about. There you go. Send us your examples. We'd love to hear your examples of uh, moments which you think really show how the director had a vision for the film or you wonder how on earth what it, or what it would be like to film that moment, but you love the final product. Just little bits of movies where you think, wow, how on earth did they film that? There you go. Superbellybros at gmail.com at superbellybros on Twitter. Well, I've got an email song this week. Do you want to hear it? Yeah, I do. It was in my head. Ready? Lovely emails, lovely emails from the listeners, from the listeners. Thanks for the plus ones. Thanks for the minus ones. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, listeners. How's that? It's a bit like 
bit babyish assembly <laughs> yeah well moving swiftly on actually you. before we move swiftly on i was a bit disappointed by the benedict jingle i know I, I sang it beautifully and then the final product was completely not how i imagined well what are you talking need to about be vision about what like, you imagined i was expecting like a really heavy guitar and it was like really weird like reggae oh, like look look, look 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 if you're not doing the work then, <laughs> i got uh, the song man I the song. <laughs> oh you, yeah sorry no, you did give a perfect vocal i forgot about that it's very highly skilled and highly thought out mm, yeah Hmm. Okay, listeners, thanks so much for being in touch with us this week. A lot of emails on Guardians of the Galaxy. Before we do that, should we hear your thoughts on it, Phil? And then yeah, hear whether you inadvertently agree with any of the listeners? <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. So I haven't read any of the emails about Guardians of the Galaxy, so this is purely my own thoughts. That's Volume what I'm doing 2, that way. is, yes. Volume 2, yeah. So I kind of agree with you, Laurie, but I think you were a little bit harsh. I think Guardians of the Galaxy is still fun. I think it is exciting. But it has some problems. I do agree with you. It does feel a little bit like a group meeting, a galactic group meeting where everyone sort of sat down and they talk about their feelings. They don't really show how these characters are feeling. They just tell you, they tell Rocket Raccoon or whatever, oh, I feel sad because of this and this. And they all have their kind of backstory that they explain. Every single one does. And it's a bit tedious in that regard. And I kind of thought there must be a more interesting way of doing this. I didn't feel that it was just setting up Guardians of the Galaxy 3. I felt like it was quite a good idea for a story, but the the kind of the general arc of the film, particularly with Peter Quill and his character and where his character goes and his relationships with other characters, I felt is quite well-tread uh, of an idea, sort of everything looking good and then maybe not so good at the end. So I thought that was a little bit disappointing. I thought Zoe Saldana as Gamora was poor. I didn't think she... It was a bad uh, storyline for those two, wasn't it? Her and Nebula. It's just completely inconsequential. I, I did like Nebula, though. I think uh, Karen was better, Gillian yeah. was much more interesting character that you care way more about. Um, and you connect way more as an audience to her, I think. I think the fatal flaw of the film and things which I, I found frustrating was there wasn't a middle to the film. It kind of just went from the very beginning, which I enjoyed, which you said, the I bit with Sovereign, bit, yeah. to then kind of the main chunk of the film. And there never was a middle to kind of build up to the climax, I don't think. They needed a, a separate set piece in a separate planet to kind of space out the film and make it feel bigger and wider. And do you more think expansive. they weren't trying to do that with Yondu and his pirates? I think they were trying to do that. I think they needed to have the Guardians of the Galaxy do that, though. Okay. The Guardians of the Galaxy basically were only on two planets. Yeah. Which I think is a, a poor choice. But I think the real flaw of the film and what I was realising as I was watching it was there was no peril. There was zero peril in that film. At no point do you feel like the Guardians are under threat. Or well, no, but they are under huge threat, but you know it's never going to actually... And so yeah. therefore, it, you, that doesn't work. It, this is the problem with the machine, I think, of knowing that Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is going to come out. Even though you could, you might lose a character here or there, the core group of the Guardians of the Galaxy, I, at no point did I feel like we're ever really in danger. Mm. It was just kind of like, well, they're going to be in the next one. So, phew. I think just a couple of things to add before we get to the listeners. I just want to add something on the sort of galactic group counselling session. And a lot of people, as you'll hear in a minute, listeners, have come back at me on that one. What I want to really say uh, to people who disagree with me and felt it was good that we explore their psyche. You agree with me on this on the point, then you feel basically. It's actually they already did this in Guardians of the Galaxy One. If you go back and watch Guardians of the Galaxy One, there is nothing new that we learn about any of our characters in this film. All they do is delve deeper and there's some kind of phony resolution to it all. So it made me think, oh, so are they all going to be completely well adjusted in volume three? Well there goes all the dynamics. 
Yeah, I, I don't. It's not so much the fact that they delve into their characters more. I don't think that's a problem. I like that. I like good character development. It's, it's not the way that they do it's, that. They're not delving into their characters more. They're delving into their backgrounds more, their backstory. Mm, but I, it was more the method in which they did that. It was okay. just them, but talking to each other. There's a lot of them sitting around talking and saying, "This is how I feel. This yeah, is why yeah. I feel this way." Oh yeah, and final thing to say. You thought this was a good idea for the story. You thought there was something here. Yeah, I liked. I thought it was a good. A I mean, good, but come on, like when the threat is a big amorphous blob, that's not a good idea for a story. Uh, come on, admit it. I didn't see it coming that that particular aspect. But the it's final just, it's climax. just the most generic kind of metaphor. It's for, re- it's, let's stop the flow of hate, man. It's well trodden. Look at, look at how bad hate is. It's jelly, <laughs> apparently, that goes solid. That's great, isn't it? <laughs> oh, pish posh. Okay, all right. Now let's hear your thoughts, listeners. If you haven't annoyed you too much, or really switched us off already. Uh, oh, these guys—they're so miserable. Rara. Johnny Valentine got in touch and he says, "Fellas." Thanks for your thoughts on Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. I watched it with my wife the other day and we had a great time. We also watched it before we heard your review of it, so we were going fresh with high expectations. We were both big fans of the first film, loved it, and we both enjoyed the second one a lot. Contrary to what you said, Laurie, I really enjoyed the way the film panned out. It was really nice to see the different journeys of the characters and we learned something new about all of them. Disagree. At the end, I thought that they were all more Laurie, real and believable be as a result. Going into the film, I didn't expect it to really pan out like this, but I'm glad it did. I think the scene that sums up the whole thing for me is when Baby Groot was being passed around the crew at the end from one member to the other. A cheesy but really nice way of showing that this group of Guardians were not just colleagues, but family. And we needed all the characters to have their issues to get there. I think you calling it a group therapy film was accurate, but not necessarily a bad thing. It was a bit like The Breakfast Club in space with CGI. That is a nice comparison. I do like that. If you frame it like that, it does sound all right. John Hughes style. Yeah. I thought the humour was very good. I did laugh a lot, particularly Baby Groot and Drax. And a bit about Mary Poppins. Yeah, that was a good gag. I I didn't mention this. I thought it was really funny. I think it scores a lot of laughs. It does go for the jokes all the time. And some of the jokes aren't worth it. But the the, the hit rate basically means you probably will laugh, guaranteed. You'll definitely laugh. I laughed. I laughed quite point. a lot, yeah. One, one of the signals for me is that Drax laughs a lot. And one of the things that Adam Sandler's films get criticised for all the time... They laugh at their own jokes. They are always laughing. They're telling you what you should be doing. And Drax is laughing all the time. I thought that was a failure because Drax's character shouldn't laugh all the time. The whole point is that laughter is an odd moment for him. He's a bit like a Vulcan. He's like emotionless yeah. almost. And they just, they just use him to laugh and tell you when all the... They signal that he gets a lot of the jokes... Uh, to deliver and he signals to you that they're funny so that's how I felt a bit Ooh. okay I have to confess I rarely notice what the lyrics of songs are which has got me in trouble before <laughs> okay uh, so didn't notice the whole predictability of the music I like the sound of it overall I think this would be a minus one for you Laurie from me my wife would also give you a minus one she said after the review Laurie's just too harsh your words Phil <laughs> double minus Ooh. yeah minus two that's what I've got minus two with love he actually said at the end <laughs> can't believe that um, and she said oh he adds a little modifying note she just really enjoyed the film rather than anything particular particularly personal against you laurie <laughs> well thank you for clarifying i do appreciate that you you met some listeners recently phil and you said they thought i mean i think you can be mean i think we are a bit harsh on uh listeners emails do you think so i Sometimes feel I that we're, we i feel just, like we expect we're doing it like they're in the room man yeah we we're open we i mean that's part of the reason why we do plus ones minus ones we feel like we're open to criticism and it's an equal ground we're all equals and uh, but maybe I it's just d- that I we've got the megaphone admit, or something. I, I certainly don't have the right answers most of the time. Uh, so, <laughs> sorry, you ridiculous. Man. Uh, okay, uh, another email here from Ellie. A quick one on Guardians of the Galaxy Two. Very simple. Dart? Question mark? Question mark? Question mark? It's an arrow, man. That's this talking is, about uh, Yondo's magical arrow. Yeah, it's an arrow, not a dart. dart. 
Silly Laurie. Well, what can I say about that? <laughs> I do apologise for my lack of accuracy in that regard. Did, do you agree with me that that scene was a bit weird? It was being presented as fun and it was mass murder. <laughs> yeah, it was a weird scene. It was, and it was The thing with using an arrow as opposed to a dart or a bullet in this case is that when you can shoot a plasma gun at someone, you know, it's like stormtroopers, just show some sparks. It's and sort of a weird away. black burnt hole. This but... is an arrow going through their body and out the other side and uh, i felt that was a weird uh, it was totally a bit off but i didn't think it was a badly conceived scene i just think it was totally misjudged i'm taking a chunk out of one of confucius's emails i'll do the rest of the minute he also adds watch guardians of the galaxy volume 2 shared similar feelings and uh, basically agree with how you felt on the whole inward soul searching thing and the song lyrics matching the scenes approach i'm glad i'm not hallucinating that that's good news (laughs) Uh, he says guardians one is definitely better but he still thinks the film did a good job with all the cameos lots of easter eggs too uh that but are not thrown at you definitely not as blatant as other marvel films trying to link up with other superheroes in the marvel universe and i'd hate to say this in front of laurie but i certainly look forward to guardians of the galaxy volume three and how they'll eventually join up with others to defend terror aka earth just to add i i am excited for guardians of the galaxy volume three i think you asked me that and i said i'm looking forward to it yeah you said you would want to watch it but you hoped it would go back to more sort of well yeah guardians of the galaxy it's volume partly one. because of this film that i'm looking forward to number three because i think i still think they're treading water in this because they've got a better story to finish off the trilogy and i do look forward to it um did you notice any easter eggs i don't know the comics well enough there's a couple of Easter eggs. Howard the Duck makes another appearance. Oh, yeah, I did notice that. The, I thought the, the end credit sequences, there was like five. I think there were five in the end. Uh, they were just a bit needless. They didn't really add anything. And in some ways, it was you have this expectation that a Marvel film is going to link to something else. And there was only one that really suggested that, the whole thing with the Sovereign at the very end. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I like the fact that it was a standalone movie in a lot of ways, apart from Guys of Galaxy 1. Okay, okay. Final one on Guardians of the Galaxy 2 here from Nicholas at Super Betty Bros. Unfortunately, plus one for Laurie for Guardians of the Galaxy 2. The biggest disappointment for me in years. Sad face. Wow. That's sad. You I, seem I'm... to be slowly winning people round to your dark, twisted, negative view. Do you know, that's unhelpful, isn't it, Phil? <laughs> no, that's, that's mean. Un... What I want to say also to everyone who just thinks I'm a killjoy, do you not remember how much I enjoyed Fast and Furious 8 and Triple X and Monster Trucks and Power Rangers? <laughs> Come on. I love it. I love a trashy film. This, I think, is trying to do something more, and I just think it has the sniff of corporate to it, so I'm predisposed not to like it. Um, what I would say about Nicholas's comment there, listeners, is that he's linked to a letterbox review that he wrote for it, which I quite enjoyed. So if you've got a spare second or two, why not read what Nicholas wrote? Are you going to tweet that out? Uh, it's already on our Twitter feed because he tweeted at us, so Brilliant. have a look. Okay, moving on from Guardians of the Galaxy 2, probably not a moment too soon. David Samuel got back in touch. David, we've not heard from you for ages, David. Thanks for getting in touch. Hi, bros. I watched Birdman a few weeks ago thinking it would be a documentary about a man in a similar line of work to me as an owl specialist in an aviary. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I forgot about this. (laughs) I was mistaken. Yes, you were. I think I can aid you in providing a genuine request to get Birdman into the movie clinic. Particularly the ending would have been a good one for the ambiguous ending segment two segment uh what do you think about birdman for the movie clinic phil i really want to do it but you have worries about it being a relatively recent movie and you don't want to spoil it that would be a very spoiler filled chat i think i think yeah it's an oscar winning movie it won for best picture it was only released three years ago i i don't want to because because most of the questions are about the ending i feel like spoiling it would be a, a i shame. want to do it i want to do, do it you? so if you want to back if we get enough listeners uh, emailing and saying yes then I think we will do it. Or we'll just... all our listeners just need to tell us that they've gone and watched it ahead of our movie clinic section. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll we, we could just do a nice spoiler warning, can mm, we? Well, we'll see. Thanks for the suggestion, though, David, and you're not alone in that. Uh, he adds, also, plus three for Phil for various films. I won't allow it. 
You've got to say what the films Why are. Why not? Because three is a huge number. That's fine. Like, that's a good endorsement. He's got to tell me what the films are. He, he says, most certainly Beauty and the Beast. So There's one, yes. Plus one. Give us the other two. And he adds, so happy to have WHWBWTW back, which is what have we been watching this week? <laughs> <laughs> that's a better acronym, isn't it? We should yeah. do that. Uh, thanks, David Samuel. Bonus. Here's a picture. Thanks for the picture, David. That's great. Yeah, thanks for the picture, David. And Kufisha's got in touch. Dear Super Bailey Bros, I'm gutted you guys didn't win the Listener's Choice Award. I think you guys are way better. Well, oh, that's very kind. It's nice for you to say. The pain in my heart is unbearable. <laughs> uh, what part? No, now he sort of undercuts that by this next sentence. So get ready. What part of the fate of the Furious did you not get? Fast and Furious 8, F8 in short, therefore F8 equals F8 equals fate. Smiley face, winking face, fate of the furious. Tongue oh, sticking out fate, face. eight. Oh, I didn't get that. Did all. you not get no. that? Oh, well, in that case, his comment's justified. <laughs> I didn't get that, but I didn't see the film. So maybe... <laughs> no, that, my, my, the reason, I, I, that's not what I meant. What I meant was, when I watched it, it wasn't fate of the furious. It was Fast and Furious 8. I know it's being called fate of the furious, but when I saw it, it was just Fast and Furious 8. That and was literally what the title card yeah, there's was a in mix the movie. Up. They're calling it different things in different territories. But thank you for clarifying nonetheless, especially for Phil's sake. Yeah, thank uh, you. Moving on, he's got something to say on Birdman 2. I found it exhausting to watch, exactly the same way that you guys did. Uh, he's even quoted you, Phil. No punctuation. Yeah, exactly. It needs, it needs edits, it needs cuts, you need breathing room. It's just the long shots that make you feel a bit seasick. And he says, confession here, I did doze off right before the love scene up on the lighting rails. Uh-oh, and woke up right after. Guess I didn't miss out much. I think you did, actually, Confucius, because <laughs> it's not just the love scene, is it? Oh, gosh. Mm, might be worth uh, rewatching that bit. But sure, he says, do please talk about Birdman on the movie clinic. Still don't quite get the ending. Uh, and actually, on that note, I just hate it when films don't properly, and then he leaves it. I love that. It's a gag. That's a good gag. That's a good gag. He meant end there, just to clarify that. (laughs) Nicely done. And he finishes off. Keep the bonuses coming. Absolutely loved each of them. I think we only did one, didn't we? Although I hinted at another one. You mentioned two, yeah. Vetoed. Very rude. (laughs) Stay after the uh, outro for that, listeners. As always, love from your most faithful fan, the wise man from the East, Confucius. Great to hear from you. Thank you. Thanks, Confucius. Final one, Alistair at Super Betty Bros. Okay, lads. Fellowship is easily the best of the trilogy. Thank you, Alistair. <laughs> wrong, 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 wrong. And he's wrong, taken wrong, a bait wrong. and said Back to the Future 2 is better than 3, but not the original. So that's another plus one for me. And Kingsman is awesome, so that's a plus one for you. Oh, confusing. I don't know whether to <laughs> disagree or agree with you, Alistair. Just be glad. I'm like, glad for my plus talking to you. <laughs> oh, thanks very much. Mate. No, I think... I'll take anyone to task on uh, Back to Future. I, I want to know why you'd say Back to Future 1 is better than Back to Future 2. Mm. Back to well, Future is bigger, better, more for, interesting. For another day, perhaps. Yes, I, well, I agree with Alistair very much. Listeners, thank you very much for getting in touch. I'm just going to add some more hype. We've had a few tweets back and forth between Alex Taylor, the director for Spaceship, and Benedict, and a bunch of other people. A lot of people are excited to hear Benedict's interview with Alex Taylor. Listen out for that next week. That's going to be great. And why not try and see it if you can? And also, I'm going to do it again because I know I meet people who are, some of our friends listen to this show, like our personal friends. Yeah. And they tell me, oh, yeah, I thought about emailing in. So if our own friends are doing that and then they're not, not emailing in, there must be other listeners who are the same. I want to hear from you. <laughs> do you not want to hear from them, Laurie? Of course I they're do. Got, I, we, we love we, listening emails. Do you, do you know the joy that appears in our hearts and on our faces when that little plus one email <laughs> sign comes <laughs> up? So, yeah, highly, highly appreciated. And we love hearing your thoughts. The whole point is chit chat. You, you guys must be bored of hearing only our opinions, right? Get yours in. Yeah, they're just as valid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
That jingle means, well, it would mean what have we been watching part two, but this is so long in the end. Let's just leave it out, man. I think we did some good ones in the first go at it, yeah? They were long ones. That's always our problem. We need to be better at editing live, man. <laughs> okay. I can't just keep cutting points So out. does that mean it's the end of the show? Yes, it's the end of the show, Phil. Yeah, outro. <laughs> Thanks very much, everyone, for tuning in to Super Bros uh, Movie Land Season 2, Episode 23. Phil, I can't not keep thinking about rebranding the show. What do you mean? Well, I just, especially when I've been on the radio a few times, and uh, this is Laurie from the Super Baby Bros in Movie Land. I mean, that doesn't, and we're never going to get that TV gig where we sit wearing suits. Saying I think disagree. I think if you look at the podcast, you need to have something zany, something exciting. Zany and exciting. You think Laurie and Phil talk film is boring? Isn't yeah, it? nobody cares about Laurie and Phil. I Super Baby Bros. Oh, yeah. Like Siskel and Ebert, man. They yeah, they're the national film critics. <laughs> yeah, what are you they, talking about? <laughs> but they they started. No, no people didn't necessarily know that. Have you ever listened to? Uh, Jones and uh, Miyazaki. No, I haven't. Those are two made-up names, but you don't care about them because who are they? You're completely wrong there because I thought what I want to know. <laughs> Maybe that's just you, man. I don't think I we, we're doing fine. If I appeal to the listeners, they're all going to say stick with Super Baby Bros, aren't they? With the Super Baby Bros, I like yeah. that. Okay, well <laughs> let's stick with that. Um, great. Thanks so much for listening. Keep your thoughts coming. Superbellybros at gmail.com at Superbellybros on Twitter. Uh, what is out next week, Phil? Alien Covenant. We're both going to see the screening of that, which I'm uh, very excited for. Yeah, yeah, that's going to be fun. And I. I feel like there's some other big releases coming out, but I can't remember. But we definitely will be covering Alien and also Spaceship as well. That's right. Definitely Spaceship and Benedict's interview with the director, Alex Taylor. Tune back in next week, listeners, for more Super Betty Bros for the time being. <laughs> uh, Ness, uh, we're looking forward to having you with us. Thanks very much. Bye. That's for now. You've got a bonus this week, Phil. Well, I'm not sure it counts, really. Shall I do my one that you didn't let me do last week? Yeah, well, we said... children-based again. Well, no, I, I, I feel like I was too harsh. It was yeah. all, I was playing up to it. Mm. I love hearing about your family. Yeah, you better. <laughs> Look, this is something... I think it's, this is universal anyway. It's something I noticed my daughter doing, and I think all children do, and we did. And I think I specifically remember our sister doing it when we were younger. Is there's this amazing technique they have where they want to eat chocolate or they want to eat something. And so what they do is they take it out of its drawer or wherever they found it and they walk up to you because they're not yet naughty enough to just stuff it in their face. <laughs> so they come to you just holding it with like a like questioning expression on their face like, I found this and I, I think, it, I don't know whether you need it. I think it must be quite important, but it looks like it might be chocolate. <laughs> and I just thought I'd come and, come and bring it to you. Just, and you, you should know we've got chocolate. You, I don't know whether you realise this, but there's chocolate we have in this chocolate. cupboard. So I thought I'd bring that to your attention. And the, it's so obvious. They just want you to give them some chocolate. <laughs> I love it. It's just a really nice little thing. And I wonder whether that carries on in adult life. That's the end of my bonus. Your turn. <laughs> I don't have a bonus. I don't, you said you've got to do one. I don't really know. I don't, London driving? Yes, do it. What? Have you ever driven in London? I've been in uh, private cars in London. I've been driven. How's that? <laughs> How was that? Did you enjoy it? Uh, no, I didn't. But that was for other reasons. That was when I worked for a private company and two senior people were gossiping in the front seat and I found that uncomfortable. <laughs> uh, but that's a different reason. Man, I found London driving. I did some over the weekend and it was so stressful. You, there's so. I imagine if you were not from England... That would be like hell. Do you genuine, think so? genuine Americans. I've driven in America and the roads are huge. They're really wide. They're all gridded. So it's very clear what you could do at every single intersection. It's true. And As I was, someone I who's had... played SimCity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> city. Blocks, grids everywhere. All about the blocks. Make <laughs> yeah, it nice bet. and square. Right turns, left turns, straight nice. ahead. Do That's all, all trains it is. as well. Then you have to worry about rebuilding roads and petrol Exactly. Yeah. But then London, you're driving in London. I had like my phone out with the, the Maps app on it all. And it's telling me exactly which lane I needed to be in. Mm-hmm. And I still 
still found it so stressful because London city driving makes no sense. In order to go straight, you have to go to the left, then do like a U-turn on yourself and zigzag all your way. It makes no sense. And yet this is somehow our capital. This is buses and pedestrianised areas though, isn't it? It's because it's a city that's been retrofitted with like car transport, right? It's just ridiculous. There's so many signs, so many lanes. And the number of times I was in a lane and I just thought, oh no, it's suddenly just going to be right turn only and I'm just going to be stuck. And then I had to do that awkward thing where you start signalling and you're just sort of desperately trying to get out. Yeah. And all the London drivers are bullies. Well, that's like as well because they are darting all over the place <sighs> i was so stressed i've never sweated so much in a car in my life that's sad was anyone in the car with you yeah there was something oh, in the car. I, them. I mean, exactly <laughs> I was, it was a stressful moment in a relationship let me tell you that well listeners give us your london driving experiences too <laughs> that's a rubbish bonus I, no it was it? a good bonus it was a good bonus here's I, do you want me to tease you one that i thought of but i haven't done yet yeah as you know on twitter they do these like hashtag and then it's a call for people to send in witty puns based on books. So it's like, hashtag Shakespeare does film or whatever it is. Yeah. But I've come up with one. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. I've only got one example. It's a hashtag ruin a dessert. And my one is tiramiso. So, you know, instead of tiramisu. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> All right, should we just get going? Yeah. Do it. Say again. Interstellar. <laughs> Actually, before we do... <laughs> Clinic. <laughs> What's wrong with your voice? Like a duck. <laughs> Blooper. <laughs> We've had a few tweets. Dak and Port. Dak and Port. <laughs> I can't speak today, Dak man. Dak and Port. <laughs>